Um, So Revelation 5, starting from verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp a golden, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Get this working. There we go. Um, my name is Jacob, if we haven't met before, and it is great to see you here, whether you're here every single week, whether it's your first time today. Um, and if it is your first time today and you're jumping in and what just came up on the screen and what I just read, it seems a bit like you're not sure what's going on. That's okay. We're going to get to that real soon. Um, and hopefully, by the next half an hour, it's going to make a lot more sense. But it does feel very like 2021, having a bit of a, a last minute change of plans. It's kind of a bit of a throwback to when, if you remember those times in 2020, 2021, every single week, it was like, who knows what you're going to get when you come to church. Um, But next week, we will be continuing on in the book of Acts. Um, Jez has actually got a great sermon prepared that um, he's really keen to give, and that's going to be happening next week. But we've ended up with a bit of a gap, and so we we just decided we would just hit pause on on, on Acts for the moment. And just take a minute to go back to the, I guess, just the first principles on why we gather and what do we do when we come together as a church and gather and worship. And the reason that um, I thought this would be uh, a worthwhile thing to do in this time that we've got today is because of a couple of verses that we looked at last week that have stuck with me and resonated with me this week. Um, If you joined us last week, we were looking at the story of Stephen, one of the leaders of the early church, who was this, this man who was filled with the Spirit, who had this confidence and clarity around the gospel and what he believed, who was laying down his life serving people, in particular the widows of the early church, and how it was that he was confronted uh, and, and, and trialed and ultimately killed for his faith. And we, we looked at that whole story last week, but at the very end of that there are these couple of verses that to me really stood out. 
where it's just before this moment where Stephen is killed, where in verse uh, 54 to 56 we read this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And for me, these were the verses that stood out most in what we looked at last week because it was the amazing contrast it's painting between Stephen's, I guess, physical experience, the fact that he's on trial and being stared down by these angry, furious, powerful people. And yet what it is that he sees on a, on a spiritual level is the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right side. And as I was just reading that last week, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to have even close to that amount of clarity as to the glory of God. To be able to say, I can see God's glory, to have a sense of his bigness, of his holiness, of his beauty, of his power, in such a way that it fills our perceptions and our awareness and our thoughts. To know Jesus to so much, to know of his character, of what he has done, of what he is doing, of how he is ruling now, that drowns out all of our other thoughts. To be moved to worship in such a way that not only would we be inclined to sing as we do so here on a Sunday, but to have our entire lives be willing to be laid down in the service of this great and awesome God. And the reason I was thinking that would just be so fantastic to have is because I think oftentimes our experience isn't like that. It's often far more murky. It's like driving through a storm. Actually, this morning as I was driving along to church, I've, if you, I don't know if, if you've seen my car, it's like 36 years old. The windscreen wiper spray doesn't work, and it started sprinkling as I was driving, and the car's been parked under a tree all week where birds have been pooing on the windscreen. So I flicked the windscreen wipers on, and it just absolutely sh- smeared the screen to the point I couldn't see. And I was just having to kind of try to make out the road just to get here. And I think oftentimes... Being a follower of Jesus feels a bit like this, that you're trying to kind of fix your eyes on Jesus. You're trying to see him, to know him. But there is so many things blocking our vision. The, The busyness of life, there's Netflix, there's emails, there's social media, podcasts, news, the craziness of just work and of looking after kids and the mess in our homes that just can block us from being able to see regularly the reality of God's glory. But to see this glory changes everything. That's what we saw in Stephen's story last week. So I wanted just to pause today and reflect on this reality because it is the reason that we gather here every single Sunday is to enable ourselves to see God more clearly and to, to just to register and understand and respond in worship to who he is. As you got out of bed this morning and you came along to church this morning, I don't know how you would have summed up your reason for coming today. It could just be that you're just on autopilot, it's a Sunday morning, that's what you do, you don't give it much thought. It could be that you're rostered on to serve in some ways, so you just didn't even have that much of a choice about coming. It might be for the community that you're just wanting to touch base with some friends. But as we think around these Sunday gatherings each and every week, we've actually got a really clear central goal as to why we do this gathering. There's a myriad of secondary goals and just other fantastic things about why we come together. But the central thing we want to do here at City Light on a Sunday morning is we want to magnify the glory of God. That's the language that we often use, use to describe what we're trying to do. We're trying to magnify the glory of God. And when you magnify something, what you are trying to do is to bring clarity to it. 
there's a couple of ways you can kind of think of, you know, in just normal life magnifying. When you've got a magnifying glass, it's about making something that is small look bigger than it is. So you can kind of look at an ant and it suddenly looks more like the size of a dog or something like that. But the other way that magnifying often happens is with a telescope. And I think this, is this, this analogy just finds, I find so helpful in thinking through what we're attempting to do on, on a Sunday, which is what you do with a telescope is you make something that is big and amazing, but hard to see from where you currently are more visible. I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend who got given a $5,000 telescope, which is a pretty crazy thing for a teenager to have. I feel like most teenagers don't have $5,000 telescopes. And I was actually a bit of like a space nerd. I, I enjoy learning about the planets and the solar system and that kind of thing. And so I was actually excited to go down into this dark park one night with this telescope and give it a go. And we set it up and we plugged it into a laptop because that's how it worked, which was pretty wild. And we just typed in the word Saturn and the telescope just like mechanically moved and pointed at a part of the sky that just looked like any other part of the sky, just kind of vague stars that you can hardly see when you're in Sydney anyway. But when we looked through the eyepiece, it genuinely blew my mind because I was expecting to see like a dot, but a bigger version of a dot. But when we looked at Saturn, you could see its rings. It's like the cool planet that has the rings. They're all at rest of pretty much the same as each other, just round. But Saturn, it just had rings. And you could see clearly, just through looking through this eyepiece and this glass, this amazing reality. I'd seen pictures of it before, but this wasn't a picture of it or a representation of it or a photo of it. This was it. I was unable to see something I'd never seen in my life up until that point, which was this amazing, huge planet, however many thousands of kilometers away. I think what we're trying to do as we gather as a church is to see a reality that is there that we often miss. That Jesus is glorious, he is beautiful, he is awesome, and for a myriad of reasons we don't see that. And so what we do when we come together is we're trying to magnify that reality. We're trying to magnify it to ourselves, to, to, to see it, to then appreciate it, and then also to show it and display it to others. Another word that we use for that is worshipping to see who Jesus is, to appreciate him for who he is, and to share that with others around us. And so today, as I had to last, last night pick something to, to speak on, I wanted to go to a chapter of the Bible that I was familiar with. Um, and so the, the passage that Anna just read out, Revelation chapter 5, is one of the chapters of the Bible that I think I've read more than any other. And the reason that I keep returning to it is because I think it so clearly and so helpfully puts into words a reality that I often can't see. It's, it helps me, I guess, regain a glimpse of just how awesome and wonderful our God is. And I often use this passage to help move me to a place of worship. And so it's from the book of Revelation, which is a bit of a gear shift from the book of Acts, which we've been in. One of the great things about the Bible is you've got all these different genres and types of writing collected together, and it is nice to kind of mix it up a little bit. And they are very different. If you think of trying to picture Luke writing the book of Acts, it's easy to picture this kind of orderly historian sitting maybe at a desk, piecing together all of his source materials and, and maps and, and accounts and, and, and memories that he's jotted down to kind of build this orderly account of what really happened. Whereas Revelation, on the other hand, was written by the Apostle John, the last surviving uh, of, the followers of the first followers of Jesus who is exiled on this solitary island of Patmos, which is where the Roman Empire would send its misfits and its deviants. And what we find in the book of Revelation is this scrawled-down vision that seems more like the dreams that someone might have had at Woodstock 69 than something you would have expected to find in the Bible. 
So it's different. It's a different type of writing. It's got angels and creatures and things that Anna just read out to us a minute ago. But the reason we're going to this today is because the purpose of John's vision is to help people see a reality that they don't often see. And that's what we're going to be getting into today. And what we see in Revelation chapter 5 is a picture of worship that shows the glorious centrality of Jesus to worship. And so my hope is what we're going to be seeing as we just walk through those verses and just kind of let those wash over us is that we're going to see that Jesus is the means of our worship, that Jesus is the content of our worship, and that Jesus is the object of our worship. But because what we're trying to do here is to actually catch a glimpse of the, of the real and, and, and present God, I'm just going to pray now before we get into this that God would be using these verses to show us himself today. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just ask as we open your word and we look at a part of the Bible that is in many ways just different to maybe what we're used to or what we've been doing this last little while, that you would use these verses to remind us of a reality that is great and awesome and life-changing. That you would enable us to even just catch a glimpse of your glory and your goodness. That we might be stirred to worship you with our voices as we sing, but in our whole lives that we would live out like Stephen did, the reality that comes with seeing you for who you are. Amen. So the book of Revelation, which, which we're kind of jumping smack bang into the middle of, um, is often a book that has a lot of confusion around it. And I think the biggest, most helpful thing you can do to understand this book is to see it not as a prediction or a forecast about something that might unfold sometime in the future primarily, but as a rich symbolism to describe a reality that we often have trouble seeing and realizing. And we're jumping into chapter 5 of the book, which is already partway into this extravagant scene of worship. It's set in this room with a throne, and on the throne is this one who can't really be described, and so John describes him by using these kind of precious gems like, like jasper and carnelian and emeralds. And around this one on the throne, who we know to be God, there are these 24 elders on 24 thrones, symbolizing the gathered people of God, shouting and singing praises to the one on the throne. As well as then, there are these four living creatures that if you go and look at Revelation chapter 4, just described just bizarrely, and they too are praising and worshiping, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And it's into this context of, just praise and worship that chapter 5 begins. And so let's look at those first few verses again, chapter 5, 1 to 5, where we see that Jesus is the means of worship. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This passage starts with a scroll in the hand of the one on the throne, which represents God's unfolding plan. But it is that as this scroll is opened and laid out, that God's will for his world would be carried out. And an angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And the answer is given, no one. 
in heaven and earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. There is no one at this point, seemingly, who is able to open the seal, to bring God's final will into being for the world. And so John despairs. He weeps loudly because of this reality, because it seems in this moment that there is no way for God's will to take place. Then one of the elders says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Again, it's just, just rich with, with symbolism, this, this so-called line of the tribe of Judah, the, the long-awaited Messiah who is going to come in the line of David, the greatest king of Israel, this military ruler, King David, who, who slayed thousands and ten thousands of people, one even greater than him, who is going to restore God's people, is going to appear the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so John looks up to see this lion. And what does he see in verse 6? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John looks up to see a lion, but instead of a lion, he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, but it's a lamb who has been slain, presumably standing in its own blood with the sign of, a, of being sacrificed upon it. And more than that, it's got seven eyes and seven horns. And if you've seen a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, that's not a lamb, it's something else. And so it's symbolism here as well that, that seven is this Hebrew number that's just used to mean completeness. Horns are often symbolic in this type of writing. For, for power and authority. Eyes is symbolic for knowledge and for wisdom. And so put all that together and what you're seeing is, what John is seeing is this great awaited Messiah, Lion King, who is also at the same time as that a lamb, a sacrificial lamb who has been slayed. And this lamb is the one that has all power, all authority, all knowledge and all wisdom. And it is he that is able to open the scroll. It is he that is able to carry out God's will. See, God's will, his ultimate desire, and you see this as you read the whole Bible, cover to cover, is to restore his creation, his people to himself. For the people that he has made to be able to know him as they ought and to worship him as they ought. And the only one who can bring this reality to pass, to make this possible, to have people worshiping the God who made them, is this lamb who has been slain. There is no worship, there is no way for there is no way for people to know their God without the shedding of blood. Throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, you see again and again this, this call for the people of God to make sacrifices in which they would week after week and year after year sacrifice animals and predominantly lambs as a way of reminding themselves that sin, their, that rejection against God has a blood price upon it. That there is a payment that is needed to make, be made right with God and countless lambs are slain week after week. But this lamb is different. He is slain and yet he lives. His death was once for all. His death is the means of all people being made right. What we're seeing in this passage with all of this kind of rich language around it is the, is the profound reality that the one who is able to carry out God's will and restore people to himself is the one who has been slain. And that if Jesus had not been slain, there would be no way to know God. This is important for us to remember, even as we kind of frame what it is that we're doing and trying to see God for who he is and respond to him in worship and to gather together like we are now, 
to realize that the only way that any of that is possible is because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the means of us even being able to worship our God. And when we fail to see this reality, we leave ourselves open to buying into, I think, one of the most common lies that we tell ourselves, which is that we are the reason we're able to worship. And I think this is a common lie because I hear people say it in all different contexts, in all different ways, something along the lines of, I'm just not in a place to worship right now. Or I'm just not feeling like I can really kind of genuinely worship God or, or, or engage in this because I know what my life is like. I know what I've done this week or haven't done this week. I, it feels almost ingenuine to come and, and sing songs with these kind of rich language like the ones we've just been singing. When you know of yourself that through the week you haven't really read the Bible and you haven't even given God much thought. Sometimes at the end of that spectrum, we even kind of stay home and say, forget this, like, I just feel so guilty, I can't, I can't do this right now. But what all of that is, is, is a belief that we have, which is that our ability to worship depends on us. That we have to somehow make ourselves clean enough or good enough or obedient enough to feel justified in coming into the presence of God to worship. But what we're pointed to here is not ourselves as the means that we can worship, but Jesus as the means that we can worship. That he died in our place so that our guilt wouldn't hold us back. That our guilt could be washed away, that we could have a way to God. And this reality underpins everything else we do. Failure to get this means that coming to church can feel like a burden or a chore or something we must do or just a reminder of our own failings. But when we come into this space to worship as we are now, the, the reason we can do this, the foundation that underpins it all, is that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain and yet lives, that he has died for us. So he is the means of our worship. But more than that, as we read on, he's not just the means of our worship. We see that he's the content of our worship. Look at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and, a gold, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When this lamb steps forward in this vision and receives the scroll, the creatures and the elders who had previously been directing their praise purely to this one on the throne for what he has made, they start singing a new song. And what they sing is a song of praise to the lamb. Worthy you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. What we see here is that the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done gives something worth singing about. They're singing about what Jesus has accomplished. That he was slain, that he died, and with that death he ransomed people for God. That people who are under the wrath of God, in bondage to sin, in slavery to their own desires, are set free and they are ransomed. And it's not just some people, it's people from every nation and every people. 
this is what this is the the foundational subject matter of what what gathers us together as a people this is what we sing about we it's great to sing about the God who has made all creation. It's great to sing about the way that he's revealed himself. But the, the central reality, or the, maybe the way to put it is, the clearest way we see God and who he is and his glory is in what Jesus has done for us. That is what we come together to celebrate each and every week. The glory of God revealed in what Jesus did for us on the cross. So this is why the content of our worship needs to primarily be not... Uh, what we're aspiring to do, or, or songs, or, or what we what we are uh, wanting to do, or how we are desiring to change, but the greatest reality we can sing of is what Jesus has already done. That by His death, sin is defeated, losing its power to enslave. That by His death, Satan was destroyed, losing his power to accuse. That by his death we were justified and made righteous before God. That by his death we were adopted as children into the family of God. That by his death we were reconciled into relationship with God. That by his death we are sanctified and being made more into the image of God. And by his death we've got a joy that cannot be shaken. These are the realities that fill our songs and our time and our worship together. These are the realities we want to bring to the forefront of our minds and our lips when we gather to worship. Because this is the most important reality there is to speak about and to sing about and to talk about. This is what we want our, our time as a church to be about. It's about Jesus and what he has done. That he wouldn't be an afterthought or he wouldn't be just like a springboard to then get on and talk about something else we'd rather be talking about. But that week after week, we want to gather to remind ourselves of just these same set of truths of what Jesus has done. And to be passionate about that. You ever had that experience where you're like talking to someone and like the conversation's kind of just kind of like trudging along and you know the person you're talking to is disinterested and then you get them onto like the topic that they're keen to talk about, whether it's sports or the Simpsons or the Kardashians or whatever it is, and they just come to life because what you're talking about has connected with them on some level. This is what we want to be for the for the message of the gospel. That we would be animated and and excited by the reality that Jesus has died in our place and opened up this way to know God. That they would have this central theme. That is what we're on about as a church. So not only is Jesus the means that we can gather and worship God, but he is the content of our worship. He is what we are celebrating and speaking about. But then even more than that, what we see in these verses is that Jesus is the object of our worship. Verse 11 goes on, Then I looked, And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. It's this picture of just utter everything that is, everything that could ever be, pouring itself out in adoration, this lamb who has been slain, for the one on the throne and the lamb. And it's important to note, uh, that up, into, up until this point it has simply been God, the one on the throne who is worshipped. But at this point, all of creation turns its gaze towards this lamb and praises him. 
with the same intensity that they had been praising this one who made the world. And what you see here is this picture that, that worship in its fullness, uh, our experience as created beings in its fullness is found in recognizing where praise should be poured out. What is the one fitting, right object of our worship? And it is Jesus. And this distinction is important because it's possible to, to speak a lot about God, Jesus, and, and say the right things as Christians, but, but having what you worship really be something else. But Jesus is the right object of our worship. And that's not always going to be the thing you talk about most. It can be revealed in another level. I don't know if it's the same with you, but when you, like sometimes when you're, when you're trying to get healthy, you can talk about getting healthy a lot. Um, when I'm trying to, like, when I've decided I'm going to get healthy, I talk so much about all the, the exercise I'm going to do and how I'm going to change my diet, and I talk about maybe I'm going to get a Garmin or a Fitbit or something like that. But talking about something isn't the same as actually having your whole self drawn towards it. The rubber hits the road when you're faced with a choice between a salad and a burger, which is like, that, that reveals what, what is talk and what is a real heart's desire in that moment. And it's possible as a Christian, and like I'm sure you probably all have felt this in yourself at some points, where it's easy to talk the talk. But in reality, the thing that you're passionate about, the thing that is driving you, the thing that you are longing for, is not Jesus but something else. But we need to understand that we were made to worship Jesus. That is why, that is why we were made. That is why God made us, to recognize his glory and to praise him with our whole beings. And so what we do when we come together as a church each and every week is try to remind ourselves of that reality because we know that we are prone to wander. We know that there is just, is so many other things that are drawing us away, that are calling us on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to worship it, to worship them. And this is a place where we remind ourselves, no, there is only one, one who is worthy of worship, the one who died for us. And this is why Sunday is the way that it is here at City Light. This is why so much of our, of our Sunday is about the preaching of the Word because it is in God's Word in the Bible that we remind whether we're preaching from the Old Testament or one of the Gospels or, or Acts or wherever it is, that Jesus is the central reality of our lives. That our meaning, that our purpose and our joy will be found in as much as we are able directing our life towards Him, bending our knee to Him and worshipping Him with everything that we are and everything that we have. That's the reason we sing the songs like that we sing every week here at church. That the realities of the gospel and of who Jesus is and what he has done for us are so great and lofty and magnificent and moving that it seems almost inappropriate only to speak about them. That we need song because it engages our emotions and our beings in a way that just speaking cannot to connect our hearts with these great and awesome truths. We sing songs that, that put into words and into tunes the substance of God and what he has done since creation to reconcile the world to himself. And part of that is that, and part of the reason we sing is to actually strengthen us and enable us to worship with our whole lives. In an ideal world, I think how it would be is we'd kind of come here every single Sunday and we'd just be, you'd walk in that door and because of, your, your life. It's just be overflowing out of you that you just, it's like you don't even know how you've been holding it back in the car on the way and being able to sing. You walk into this room and you just start praising because it's just what's inside of you wanting to get out. But oftentimes that's not the reality that it is. Oftentimes it actually, 
it isn't necessarily going to be the thing on the forefront of your mind or this overflow of the heart. And what singing together as a group like we do on a Sunday can more be like is actually practicing something so it comes more naturally in the rest of life. Uh, this year, I've had a, I had a, um, some sh- shoulder surgery a few months back, and I've been in rehab ever since that point because after the surgery, I was in a sling for so many weeks that a lot of the, you know, the muscles in my shoulder had atrophied. And we don't use a, a muscle for a, a certain amount of time. It actually takes a bit of conscious effort to get it back moving again. So I'm doing these exercises that for my good arm are just super, super easy and, and kind of comfortable. But for my bad arm, it's just like this is really, really hard work. And I need to do this work to make it work in the other things I need to do in everyday life. And singing can be like that. It can be this kind of strengthening of our spiritual muscles. And particularly, I think this is an important thing to hear. If you would describe yourself at the moment as someone who's maybe been in a place of spiritual dryness for a time, where you're feeling like there isn't maybe a lot of joy, or there isn't this natural feeling about singing praises to God at the moment, we're actually bringing yourself into that place and, and bringing yourself almost willfully to actually sing these words and try to connect with them on some level can actually be the means of strengthening those spiritual muscles that we need to be people who are worshipping God, not just with our voices, but our entire lives. That as we magnify Christ in this place, we would be training that part of us which loves him and sees him and recognizes him so that when we're at work on a Monday, that's, that same reality is there. That we are drawn to prayer, that we are drawn to gratitude, that we are drawn to thanks, and that we are drawn to boldness in speaking. And this is also the reason that people serve here on a Sunday. The reason that people come into this space uh, and, and give up their time to, to, to make food, to welcome people, to do sound AV, play in the band, look after kids, is because this, is a, this reality that we have a, a space to, in which to magnify Christ and worship him is so great that one of the best ways that we can love other people is to enable them to do this to make this a space in which others can connect with and see and encounter the glory of God. It's an act of love that the band does every week. They get here at 8 8 o'clock and they they play for a a couple of hours beforehand so that when the rest of us get here, we're actually assisted and helped to worship. It's a blessing that they give us so that we can have that opportunity to be reminded. It's the same reason that people put out these chairs so you've got a place to sit the same reason that people spend time on the computer getting the words on the screen so we've got words that we can we can sing because there is almost no greater love that we can give our brothers and sisters to, is than to give them a place where they can re-encounter the glory of god but also for a world that is desperate and needy we want this to be a place where people can come in and encounter jesus for the first time so what i want to just do today is just to encourage you all as you think about every single Sunday coming here. Often we just, we do it, but we don't really talk about it. Um, and particularly as we're going into like winter, the, the morning is going to get colder. They're going to get wetter. They're going to get harder. <laughs> and often there's like a bit of a winter slump, like if you get the kind of winter blues as well, like that's, a, that's definitely a thing. But just as a reminder of just the sacredness of this space, not because of the space itself, it's a, it's a school hall, you know, it doesn't feel in many ways that sacred. And it's not because Sundays are special or anything like that, but there is something special about getting together as the people of God and engaging in corporate worship in the way that we do in each and every week. So I just want to encourage you to actually come in with intentionality around that.
to prioritize what we have in this, this slot on a Sunday morning as, as vitally important to the health of our souls. That we need these reminders. We need to spend time under God's word. We need to spend time surrounded by our brothers and sisters hearing praise to our King and our Maker and our Lord. To come into this room and even on your way here each week, maybe spend some time praying or, or, or reading your soul in whatever way you need to, that you are coming in ready to worship. Aware that what we're doing here is not just going through the motions, but it is joining in something eternal with, with our brothers and sisters around the world and, what, and ultimately doing just a little bit of a glimpse of what we will be doing for all eternity in worshipping our great God. That we would be a church who magnifies Christ. So we've actually got a, just a, chi- a time to put this into practice now. In a minute, the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us, um, which we're just so, so grateful for, that we have this opportunity now just to sing a few songs. And my prayer will be that in that time that you are able to connect your heart to the realities that we're singing about. Or more, maybe even more than that, my prayer is that God would connect your heart to the realities that we're singing about. Because it's not, it's not by us, it is by Him. It is not by us, but by him that we know him. It is Jesus, the, the lamb who was slain on our behalf that opens up this door for us, that whatever week you have had, whatever guilt you may be carrying at the moment, to know that it is not your goodness or your badness, it is not your righteousness or your unrighteousness that affects whether or not you can stand before God, but it is his love for you. We might then sing of this content and direct ourselves, even if it's just for these 15 minutes, as much as we can, just direct ourselves towards this great and mighty God and to praise him for who he is. So the band's going to come up now. I'm just going to spend some time praying. And then we're just going to stand and sing together. Um, we're, just going to, we're going to spend this time worshipping the God who made us, who loved us, and who died for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that it's often so, so hard to see you um, and to see you on the not just with our eyes, but with our hearts, to, to, to know of you, to, um, to feel that you are there, that's how we want to think about it, or to just have in, in the forefront of our consciousness just how, just how amazing you are, just how different, how other, how holy, how big, how mighty, how, how different to us in every single way, how loving you are. And Lord, we know we, we've struggled to put this into words because no words can really convey how amazing you are. The God who has existed for all time, beyond matter, before matter even existed. The God who has all power or control. And the God who has experienced in, in the death of Jesus a heartbreak and a pain so profound that we could not even possibly imagine. And you did that out of love for us. Lord, we pray you'd be opening our eyes, that we would be able to magnify you, that we would see you first and foremost for who you are, that we would be stirred in our affections towards you, but also that we would be reflecting that out as well, that this wouldn't be an insular place where it's just to get our needs met, but this would be a place where you are echoed out into this city, both as people come into this space and join in with us, but also as we go out that we would be a people of worship to you for your glory. Amen.